have this economics thing in here, I just, I have very little excitement about this. I know, me too. I hear this news all the time. I guess the one thing that is sort of funny is how the banks blew it all year. Like they kept, they kept betting on a rate decrease and they kept betting and they kept betting and they were wrong. We never, they, we never got it. We never got it. Uh, and um, also I think it's notable that there's two more FOMC meetings and we're probably likely going to get one more interest rate hike. So that's interesting, I suppose. Price of oil is down on the expectation of a recession because of this de- because of this decision. <laughs> the other interesting thing is whenever you have government intervention in financial markets, you always hear this statement that they're going after speculators. Speculators are doing something. Yeah. When they say that, that's a red flag because it's never spe- I mean, speculators are not the problem. Like speculators can't move a market. They see a market set up. And so China's been cracking down on speculators and on the UN. It has had no effect. I don't have it in here because it's hard to find a good article that sort of expresses it. But basically, a weakening yuan is problematic in many ways, and it it goes with capital outflows from China. Because we don't have a lot of like public opinion about China, the currency is almost like the biggest indicator of general social cohesion in a sense. Because as it is stable or increasing, there's demand for activity in China and signs of optimism as funds go in, but then but now it's decreasing. And so it's just it's the whole economy argument. How do you have a global economy that's growing without China? And the answer is you don't. The dollar's sucking all the air out of the room. The dollar is ripping. Dixie's doing great on the news. So there's that. Bad sign. Yeah. Although interestingly enough, the general stock market's doing okay. So this is probably why, but uh Bitcoin isn't going down in price at the moment. It's holding at 26. And the reason why that's interesting is historically during the bull run and for a while after that, quite a while after that, when the Dixie goes up, Bitcoin would go down. And it's almost like a one for one. If if the do- if people are you know going in hard on the dollar, they're pulling back on Bitcoin and Bitcoin's price declines. However, since the summer and now into the early fall, seemingly, the two have become completely divorced. They are They're no longer matched in trajectory. The Dixie's going up and Bitcoin's just doing its own thing price-wise. Yeah, I think it demonstrates that Bitcoin is not just a speculative bet on low interest rates, which I think it was it was highly correlated with financial bets like that for most of its of its existence, even through the financial bubble of 2020. But now we see bearish financial signals and Bitcoin doesn't dump like a risk asset. It seems to have other properties. And so we think, at least I think, that because of its monetary properties, the ability to sort of self-custody it, to hold it, to transact with other Bitcoiners or people who want Bitcoin with very little need for permission. You know, you don't need an established market. You don't need to necessarily register. It's very useful for people at, um, I think, different like points on the wealth spectrum for relatively small amounts and for relatively large amounts. Uh, it does ha- clearly have these monetary properties. And if enough people use it that way, then its financial performance will be different than speculative assets that only have the speculative property. I think, too, we're looking at a different period in Bitcoin's network adoption. So there is just more base activity. And the reason why I say that is even though there's less purchasing going on and there's more hodling than we ever see, the mempool isn't clearing, right? My, my mempool, I, I turned it up. It's like I have like a, a gigabyte mempool now and it's using like 800 megabytes of it. We're really seeing a lot of base demand. And the analysis that I've seen by Glassnode and others seems to indicate that what's happening is ordinals are coming along still and buying the cheap block space. So they're not really, you know, buying like they're not really buying in when the fees are high. 
high and stuff like that. But when the fees drop down between all of the other base activity on the network and these sort of bottom feeder ordinals, no offense, guys, they're kind of but they're, they're there to buy up the cheap time on the network. We're, we're kind of keeping demand for both the fees, the network, the, 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 the network staying active. And then when you combine that with the people that are DCAing and that are stacking, we're essentially buying up as much Bitcoin that is mined every day right around there. And you add that with the network activity, the base network activity, the ordinals are kind of providing. And I think we're seeing just the sort of price go sideways for a while. And so because it can support that price until something in the market shifts dramatically and then it either goes up or down, but then it goes sideways again because that base activity remains and that base demand remains. And I don't know if this ends the conversation around the security budget. I suspect it doesn't, but it is interesting that the Bitcoin fee market is evolving because prior to the advent of ordinals, there was never really a sustained high fee environment. Bitcoin fees, they followed the Bitcoin halvening cycle. And so during the euphoric speculative mania of the late halvening cycle, fees would spike and then they would crash and they would remain at one sat per V-byte until the next halvening. This has definitely changed because now ordinals are this back pressure. They'll buy as much cheap block space as you want to sell them. And I wonder (laughs) what happens to Bitcoin fees if there are more use cases than just ordinals. These assets on Bitcoin protocols, potential privacy technologies like ARC, which of course require APO or some other covenant to enable, they would require a constant on-chain footprint in every block. And maybe that would reduce fee pressure because there would be less of a need for lightning channel opens and closes. Bitcoin might just be like oil in that the more useful it is, the more expensive it is. It's not like a high price chokes off activity. It's more like a high price to transact is a sign of its usefulness and value. And the market dynamics will make it so that if the fees get too high, the ordinal stuff will just pull back because they're not going to make money. But I think the other thing this shows us, this conversation of, well, what happens when all the Bitcoin have been mined or the reward ratio is so, so small? How are the miners going to survive? Can they survive on fees alone? It's this conversation we just had shows me why I hate that question so much, because it's so short-sighted, because you're trying to project into the future, looking at the existing use cases and worrying about what might happen if what's exactly happened today just were to continue to scale out 100 years. And it's so silly because what we've just seen in the last nine months is that something can come along and create an entire new base demand that completely changes the calculus. And it's entirely likely those types of things will continue to pop up and evolve. And there may be market acceptance, especially on the miner side, as things do, as the rewards do diminish, as we are supposedly, this is way down the road, as they're supposedly just surviving off fees, then the market might be ready for more base chain use cases that make their jobs profitable and the network may be satisfied with the solutions that come up. And we've just seen in the last nine months, it's entirely possible for us to create those scenarios. And it, it just why this the, the, the security conversation and the fee conversation is just so short-sighted and silly to have right now. It's like, it's like being concerned about how many rooms your three-year-old child's house is going to have when they're an adult. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Now, is the steel man to that argument that by accepting that there are going to be 
Bitcoin use cases and chain and positive changes to the fee market in the future that we can't imagine today. Does that also open the door to the possibility that something will change and the economic incentives of the fee market will be incredibly negative in the future and might move Bitcoin to a much more permissioned and centralized and maybe the the Bitcoin power balance might shift towards a different party in the security ecosystem? If you can convince all of the parties responsible from developers to miners to node operators to end users to developers, if you can convince all of those cohorts, each that have their own incentives in their own bags, then it's probably worth doing. But what if mining becomes a lower margin activity and therefore has massive capital requirements, it would naturally centralize into massive entities. But a just as likely scenario is what if an ASIC comes out that's a three nanometer chip that's built in the style of an Apple SOC and draws hardly any power and you can build it into everybody's heater at home. And so all of a sudden you've gone from some miners here and there to just thousands and thousands of everyday plebs have miners in their home. This is happening already. I was just looking at a heater that is $350-ish, or if you get a bigger one, $800. It's just a one-room heater, but it's an ASIC miner. And instead of just heating up a piece of metal and blowing a fan across it and just 100% wasting that heat, it's mining Bitcoin and blowing air across that to cool the ASIC and warming your home. And they're now below $1,000. So these innovations, like you, you, you and I are like, the guys on the Computer Chronicles in 1987 talking about what the capabilities of a laptop and the PC gaming market might be. And we're not even fathoming that the iPhone's going to come along in 20 years, right? It's going to, the hardware evolution and the economics and the market of it are there. We even saw Intel bite. I think they've given up in the in the bear, but we saw Intel bite and they were going to start producing ASICs in the United States that use less power. That could continue to happen if this market continues to grow, especially if the ESG angle of Bitcoin really gets played up and there's like the ESG approved mining and it's all green. And of course, one of the ways they're going to want to be green is to buy sourced ASICs that are trustable, right? And low power and all that. I was listening to a conversation about how renewable energy projects get financing. And it seems like there is a pretty arbitrary and complicated model that's used to sort of judge the economic feasibility and the positive environmental impact of renewable projects. And basically, the sort of bizarre non-economic build-out of renewable energy, at least in the United States, is mainly due to a very gameable model being created to provide solar energy tax credits. And so if you can game this model and you can put weird values into the spreadsheet, you can create basically a thing that gives great financial returns, but it requires you to build some solar infrastructure in West Texas that's not connected to any consumers of electricity. So that's the cost. So you're imagining a future where Bitcoin mining increases your renewable energy score in this model. And now we have Bitcoin mining ASICs being built into all sorts of projects because, of course, it, it improves the financing. You know, why yeah. wouldn't you do it? Duh. Yeah, I, I invite the listeners to look up something called a load bank. I only, I'm so silly. I only recently realized that this is a product. The thing, the, um, like a medium sized load bank is $30,000 and it weighs as much as my RV. 
And all it does is waste power. It's just, it's a huge piece of equipment that is a power draw. So that way they have reliable demand that they can turn on and off. And they spend $30,000 to just burn the electricity. And then these things, because, you know, they're taking huge loads, they, they need maintenance, but they're also in a massive environmental impact to build because there's all kinds of extremely, extremely dense metals in there. It's just, it's so funny when I realized there's a product out there called a load bank that just wastes power. And you could put a Bitcoin mining operation in that same exact spot and be profitable. It, it, you just human nature is people are too greedy to resist that. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 22nd, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. I'm here as always with me, Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the other side of 100. On today's show, we're going to discuss trying to understand how Amboss.Space's new Lightning Node liquidity provisioning system works. We're going to go down memory lane and talk about the Mt. Gox exchange and hack because there's some news from the bankruptcy estate trustee that repayments are being delayed another year. In economic news, the U.S. Fed remains very hawkish in its latest press conference, holding the Fed funds rate at 5.5%, but financial markets seem to be forecasting a different reality. At the same time, capital outflows from China are increasing as the dollar strengthens, which is another negative global economic sign. In Bitcoin education, we were going to talk about inscriptions, but I think we just did. But I found this Python script that was showed up on the No BS Bitcoin feed. It's this odd model that can guess the US dollar price of Bitcoin over a short period of time using only your node data. Oh, that's fun. It is fun. I, I was reading the code and thinking, wow, this is actually pretty, pretty clever. And then we have some boosts and that's our show. Mm. On the topic of energy and nodes, just, or I mean, miners really quickly, Bitmain just launched a new series of ant miner mining devices yesterday. They're an unbelievable gain over their 2019 or 2018 units. So for example, take an S19, 14 terahashes. These new machines are 20x faster and they use around or slightly less the same amount of power. They now do 200 terahashes and they have a, the S21 does 335 terahashes. You know, for such an infamous company, Bitmain really does great work. Work, I guess it's really impressive. I mean, it's that is a ginormous efficiency gain, and we're just ba this is a baby industry still. Like these companies, Bitmain, right? We're gonna look back in ten years and think it was these were like cute little like quaint local companies, you know, like small little mom and pop operations compared to the intels that are gonna be in the space. If we can all keep our nodes up and keep liquidity actually inbound, because that's you know, even if we have the mining operation going, the lighting network. That's another problem. And we've talked a lot about how the Lightning Network works very different from Bitcoin on-chain transactions. Because if you have a Bitcoin wallet and I have a Bitcoin wallet, I can always send you Bitcoin. You can always receive Bitcoin if you just provide me with an address from your wallet. And all I need to do is to advertise the transaction that sends to your address and attach a fee that is high enough for a Bitcoin mining pool to mine that transaction into a block. Lightning works very differently. Do you want to take a stab at it? Well, you can think of Lightning more as, say, Dad and I open a channel between each other and we agree to committing a certain amount of sats to that channel. So that commitment's already essentially been made on chain. And then that's why you can instantly, quote unquote, move a sat between the channel because we've already committed essentially for that amount. And that's why if, say, we had a 
one million sat channel between us and somebody tried to send in a five million sat boost, our channel would reject it. Couldn't or it would be over capacity or I don't exactly know what the error message would be, but you wouldn't have enough inbound liquidity, essentially. But Chris, this sounds like a bank. It sounds like we are making an on-chain Bitcoin transaction, but then all that transaction says is what is the maximum amount of money that can move between us, but then we are just keeping track of the movement of funds between us using essentially spreadsheets on each of our nodes. So how is this trustless? I mean, this almost sounds like we're we're sort of weirdly collaboratively opening a bank account with each other. <laughs> I mean, hmm. yeah, I guess it would be like I opened a link to your bank account and then you opened a link to someone else's bank account, right? But it would just be a channel of your bank account. It would just be a provisioned amount of your bank account. It wouldn't be your entire bank account. It wouldn't be, or in this case, your entire wallet, <laughs> which would be a little dangerous. And what I'm getting at is that this payment channel between us is governed by the Lightning Protocol. And so as we move sats, quote unquote, air quotes, because we're just updating a ledger that we're holding between us, this payment channel accounting, our Lightning nodes actually create new withdrawal transactions that represent the current balance on each side of the channel. So this is a really cool technology because it means that all of the transactions that Chris and I make and that we route that route through us to other people in the Lightning Network, they never go on chain. There, this data, this transaction history never goes on the Bitcoin main chain. And instead, it's protected by this ability for participants in Lightning to withdraw from a channel and take the current state of their money with them. And since both parties can withdraw from the channel and pretty reliably get the current amount of Satoshis that they quote unquote own after all of this off-chain activity, it actually means we can kind of trust this network and pseudo trustlessly transact because we know we could leave at any time. But the problem is each channel has a maximum amount that can move through it. And as we transact, that liquidity flows to one end of the channel or the other. So if all the liquidity flows to my end of the channel, I can send to Chris, but I can't receive from Chris because there's no liquidity on his end of the channel. And we've been talking on the show for a long time about how we solve that problem because it's very annoying when the liquidity is on the wrong side of the channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing that new Lightning users discover, they set up a node and then they they can't send anything out. I think that's a, that's a, it's a really kind of rough first experience with Lightning is... I think it's the opposite. They can send, but they can't receive. Either way, like it's just you, you either way you can't send or receive very many until you start opening channels, right? It's just a it's a very confusing thing. And you know, for years too, the best way to actually get channels was to go to through some weird website or a chat room and Thankfully, I was lucky because I just had audience members I could trust. And so they, we could just chat over Matrix. But I, most people don't have that opportunity. So it was really not not a good experience early on for people that are setting up their own Lightning Node and want to you know, be sovereign. I remember podcasters saying, hey, thanks so much for my community for opening up channels with me and thinking, this is so hard. I, you know, I don't have a community. No one's opening a channel with me. This sucks. And now we have a community. So that's just a humble brag right there, I guess. It's, it is really great. It is actually one of the things I love is like, cause you're, you know, they're helping it's in its a way it's helping make the show possible by providing that inbound liquidity. And so I'm really grateful for it, but the tooling has just been evolving. And I look at some, some providers like voltage and I think sometimes I fantasize about, boy, what if I just, 
what if I just hosted it all in Voltage? I know they have things to auto-manage all of my channels for me, and I just don't have to worry about the node. It's so tempting. But I also have this OG Bitcoiner mentality of, I got to self-host it because if I don't, that's just going to go away over time. And we need as many nodes on the network as possible. And I want to have my own source of truth that I can trust. And like, I want to also run my own Lightning channels. And so here I remain. And we're discussing Lightning liquidity because amboss.space, which is kind of, it's almost like a, isn't Amboss sort of like a social media slash node information page? Like it almost feels like your node has an account on amboss.space and it's then the, the stats on it are how attractive and popular your node is. Right, right. That is kind of true. Yeah, because they've gone out and they've discovered the public lightning nodes. Our nodes are on there. And then they also can see all the channel data. And so they can kind of rank the nodes. And I I find it a useful tool from a discovery standpoint. So if I'm going to open up a channel, say, with Fountain or Albi, I want to verify I'm opening it with the right node and that somebody just didn't name their node Fountain, right? That's totally a thing they could do. And Amboss has been a nice tool to go in there and say, oh, yeah, this definitely looks like the correct Fountain node here. They verified it with Amboss. It's a useful tool in that regard because there is this social layer to Lightning itself. It's just an inherently a, a peer-to-peer system. Right. And the reason that Lightning kind of needs that social layer is because it has lower security than Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin needs a social layer because we all have to agree on what the Bitcoin software is so we can run compatible versions. But Lightning needs even more coordination because it is possible for situations to happen like network outages and things that can cause funds to be stuck. And so the Lightning security assumptions fail in certain situations where networking fails, where storage hardware fails, because Lightning is a hot system. So if your node just has disk corruption or other sorts of errors, you could accidentally broadcast an invalid Lightning state and your channel partner's Lightning nodes might attempt to sweep the entire channel because that's the security mechanism. So as we reduce kind of protocol level security, you have to add essentially social security or trusted third parties to compensate for that. At least that's my model. And Amboss can provide information about Lightning nodes to help you make a decision on who you want to connect to. They also have a liquidity marketplace called Magma. And so you can log into amboss.space and you can kind of offer to sell a channel. Essentially, you're saying, hey, I've got Satoshis. I will open a channel to your node maybe for a certain period of time, but you need to pay me a little money to do that because I'm tying up Satoshis. You're kind of, you can kind of think of it like I'm putting my Bitcoin to work for you. So you need to compensate for me like that. And I think there are a lot of parallels to, oh, is this, are we developing a Bitcoin interest rate here? Sort of demand for Bitcoin liquidity creates some kind of fundamental interest rate in this ecosystem. I don't think we're there yet. I think that most Lightning channel management is essentially non-economic. It's it's just enthusiasts. I mean, we're enthusiasts. There's economic activity on it, but we're not making very complex economic decisions about who we open Lightning channels with. We're just trying to make it work. There are some. And if you're out there, uh, write us in, boost in, let us know how it is. Because every now and then, like on Stacker News or somewhere, I'll come across a thread from somebody who is serious about optimizing for fees and all of that. And uh, I don't know how much, I don't know if they really, I don't know if it's worth it. I'd love to know. I don't think it has been because I recall an interview with someone who was running one of the top lightning nodes and he was running it out of a dedicated box in a data center. And he just expressed that he'd been taking a lot of risk with running so much hot Bitcoin in a server because obviously it's constantly under attack. Everyone wants to hack that server and steal it. And he'd even dealt with 
uh, security incidents at the data center, like data center employees, essentially, I think, trying to physically access the box and sweep his wallet. So it just sounded like an absolute nightmare. And it's not like he made a 30% return on his Bitcoin. You know, he made yeah. maybe a 10% return and he was working really hard at this and taking a large amount of personal risk. Where maybe I could see it making some revenue is, and they don't do it currently, but say Stacker News, right? It's a lightning powered news site. You upvote comments with a sat, you upvote stories with a sat. They could optimize their node to make some fees there. They're currently turning around and just putting that back into Stacker News. I think I wonder, like maybe Fountain, Fountain FM, maybe something similar because they have sats are such a key part of their ecosystem with the earning as you listen and the boost system and the comments and all of it is or like even getting a transcription is a few sats. So I wonder if they could, you know, if you're if you're running all of that and your node is central to that and maybe maybe there is a maybe there's a structure there where those operators that are running a community can make a, a certain amount of, of fees. I, I don't know. I, it seems to work for the Stacker News folks, but I, I don't think they're really profiting from it so much as just taking that and putting it back into the product. And now Amboss has a product called Hydro, which allows you to pay Amboss and they will source a channel from their Magma Lightning Marketplace or perhaps open one to you directly. So this is a way to just have a kind of a commercial liquidity provider for Lightning nodes. I think this is a pretty standard offering at this point because there are multiple Bitcoin Lightning liquidity marketplaces. There's this Magma one, Voltage, the cloud Lightning node provider also has one. Yeah, I've used Lightning Plus, I think it is or whatever. So there seem to be quite a few ways to get Lightning liquidity. You have to pay for it. It seems like a very early stage in this Lightning liquidity marketplace evolution. What's interesting is this is relatively usable for a not too technical user, in my opinion. I mean, yes. it's really just making a Bitcoin transaction and giving some details from your Lightning node. They have a great UI. Out of all of the Lightning tools out there that kind of do what Amboss does, I've always thought Amboss had the best looking version of that tool. But I think you're underselling one thing they're doing here. It is actually kind of compelling to me because they're essentially bringing the best part of what I think being at Voltage would be to self-hosted nodes. If you go in, and most people are doing this anyways if they have a serious Lightning node, and you confirm your ownership of your node through their system, like you create an account and you, you pair it, you can then automate liquidity. So they, and you can set the threshold and the amounts and the frequency, and they'll monitor your channels for you because they're already doing that anyways. And when your inbound or outbound liquidity reaches a threshold, which you set, they'll automatically sort things out, either whatever it is, loop it, or they'll, they'll just buy more liquidity and put it in. You pre-configure the amount. And so they'll dynamically give you liquidity in or out as you need it. And you can set thresholds so it can do it before it's an issue. And so it really is kind of that set it and forget it system if you pay them and they take a little cut. But if you if you let them manage it, that is super sweet for a guy like you who's busy. You could, if you were willing to set this up and it would just maintain your liquidity profile the way you want. And it's on your own node. That is an interesting detail in that in the enterprise space, when you get third party software support and financial providers, if you want them to be able to interact with your system, you have to give them various accesses to your 
physical infrastructure or, or uh, cloud infrastructure. And as we can see with the Fortress breach that happened a few weeks ago, third parties that access your infrastructure are security holes. But it sounds like AMBOSS and this service, because it's kind of working in tandem with the Lightning Protocol, which is designed to be an adversarial decentralized network, you can now kind of get third-party financial and software support. You can pay for it, but it's not like they need particularly high access to your systems. It's, it's really interesting. I think from a kind of security perspective, you're definitely onto something. This is kind of an evolution. I already have this installed. The tooling to do it on the node side is done through Thunderhub. And uh, I already use Thunderhub because it's one of the better node management tools. In fact, it's my prefer like I peer with a lot more nodes than I open channels to. And I use Thunderhub to do all of that peering because it's so simple. It also gives you some visuals on your channel stats and, um, and whatnot. So what you do is Thunderhub has already had functionality for a while where they give you a digital signature and you go plop that into your Amboss account and verify that that's your node. I mean, I did this like a while ago. And so it's just an extension of that functionality. So I think you do have to have Thunderhub, but I would recommend you put Thunderhub on your node. It, they have an app on Start9 and Umbral. You can even put it on your Voltage nodes. They have it for RAS Blitz. And you could also, it'll come with BTC Pay Server too, because it's a pretty good tool. And Thunderhub is just connecting to your Lightning Node API yeah. and giving you a graphical interface to interact with the node. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, um, like in the case of Umbral and probably Start9, uh, it's just a container, you know, so you could run it on any system you have a node if you have Docker on there. How do you feel about Ambux? Because Amboss is asking you to buy a non-redeemable token that you can credit for Satoshi liquidity to your node, and it's non-transferable. So they're trying to get away from a potential securities violation by doing an ICO that can be redeemable for Satoshis here. Yeah, they'll let you buy Ambux with fiat somehow to it, or at least they price it in fiat as well. This is the part I don't like. They call it a prepaid credit system. To me, it sort of feels like the equivalent of Xbox points. You know, I, I buy, I put five bucks in and I get 4,000 Xbox points or whatever it is. That's sort of what this feels like. And maybe this is just a very practical solution to offer a service like this. You essentially need a credited account with a balance in order for them to automatically support your liquidity. And then when your account runs down, they alert you or they stop that support. Maybe this is just the practical implementation there. At the same time, we're in this Bitcoin space, this crypto space. The moment people start giving you credits and taking Bitcoin and giving you an account balance, it's. I think it's just a natural red flag. Yeah, I really like the idea of the service. I wish it could all just be sats for sats, right? Just maybe. I don't but know. it is sats for know. sats in that Amboss points are yeah. Satoshis. Yeah. They're really Satoshi denominated, but you can't redeem them. And maybe that's necessary because if you could redeem them for Satoshis, maybe we'll get into a situation where I could I could uh, buy Amboss bucks and then somehow let you withdraw them. And so now they're a money transmitter legally, perhaps. They're not clear. I, I don't actually know if it's a token. It might just be. I think it's just know, an database. account balance. Yeah. So, I mean, at least it's not like, you know, an ERC token or something. Right. I was going to say ERC 20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think this conversation about balances and accounts leads quite nicely to the latest announcement from Mt. Gox bankruptcy estate trustee Nobuaki Kobayashi that payments to Mt. Gox creditors will be delayed at least another year. Oh, and, my gosh. And we why? We should have got a bet going. Why? Yeah. 
I think it's hard to tell from the press release. The reason why this I find frustrating is I think I'm going to have a certain level of closure when this finally happens. And um, it just feels like that closure has been pushed out year after year after year. And then there's also like, what what does it do to the market when you drop like 100,000 Bitcoin on the market? And, you know, if you do it during a bear, it's like, great. Like if they did it right now, it's like, let's just get it over with. Let's take Bitcoin down to 14 and stack, 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 buddy. Um, but if they do it like next year around this time, I actually kind of expect the price to be rising around this time next year. <laughs> I would, you know, just it's just the, the just getting kind of sick of the the roller coaster ride of it and feeling like we could be on a nice little run and then this comes along and it just kills the momentum. Uh, obviously, long term, it doesn't really change anything. But just somebody that's been following this for what feels like longer than my children have been alive, I just would really like the closure. It's really been quite a story. And there must be a book about it, but I haven't read specifically a book about Mt. Gox because Mt. Gox was created by Jed. What's his name? Yeah, I don't. I can't remember. I always just think of Mark. You know, I met Mark. I mean, virtually. Oh, how did you meet him? Uh, another venture he was doing. And uh, I didn't know that he was a participant, but it was a sales call because they wanted to do advertising on JB. I said no. Was it Tenebe or whatever? His cat's um, No, it was... Um, it's an online like VM platform that spins up virtual machines real quick through your web browser, and you have like all these different distros you can choose from, like Heroku. Uh, but yeah, but more more like just focused at consumers and developers who just want to go and like spin up a machine, like an actual desktop, like an uh, actual Linux desktop. That seems a little early. It was just a couple of years ago. It was right when all the free node stuff went down. They split off, and Carpellis was with the group that split off, and they had a sales call with me because they wanted to advertise their uh, this virtual platform. So this was way past Mount yeah, Gox, just a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't you didn't recognize him at the time? You were like maybe. Well, not. they didn't tell me he was on the call. It was me and two sales guys, and then to kind of like try to impress me because you know they didn't know anything about me. They looped Mark in as kind of like the the celebrity, you know, he's like the Joe Biden of the sales deal. He just called in to like say hi and chat about the weather and talk about history a little bit. And then he got off the call and uh, that was talk it. Talk about and the history the, of Bitcoin or the history of Freenode? Of what, they're, of, of what, why they moved away from Freenode and what they're trying to do with this VM platform and why he's involved and all of that. And yeah, they thought I'd be really impressed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I got off. I said, I said you no were, thanks. You, you were like, <laughs> can, can we enable, if, can we enable punching via the teleconference? Cause you stole my money, man. <laughs> you know, he still had the same kind of general vibe too that I remember that he had back in the days of Mt. Gox. It was interesting. It was 100% the same guy, same accent, same sound. Uh, and what vibe. was that vibe? Because I've I've never heard anything flattering about Mark Carpellis. <sighs> and what I've heard is that when Charlie Shrem, who had that payment processing company in New York, and of course Charlie uh, was charged with operating an unlicensed money transmission business and was sent to jail for that. But Charlie described dealing with Mark and Mt. Gox as just so stressful because Mark was incredibly unprofessional. And I mean, maybe he was falling apart under the strain. You know, the architect that SBF was kind of modeling his public caricature after? I'd say Mark is kind of like that vibe. He's a little, a little unkept, um, kind of nerdy, very nerdy. Um, you get the vibe that he was just trying to build something 
And like, he just wants to get to work on something and he just kind of want to put, he wanted to put all the Matt Gox stuff behind him and not really have been, he doesn't want to be known for that. I think is kind of the vibe I got from the conversation. I think it's too late for that. I didn't get, I didn't get like, um, you know, Bernie Madoff vibes. I got maybe more on the spectrum vibes. Oh yeah. That's exactly what I was imagining. Sorry for that. Well, that was an interesting digression, but Mark actually allegedly bought Mount Gox from Jed McCaleb. And Jed McCaleb is amazing because he started Mount Gox as a Magic the Gathering online exchange. Yeah. (laughs) But then he apparently sold it to Mark for quote unquote nothing. Well, he received 12% of the shares of the new company and he was supposed to receive from revenue from the deal. But then Jed goes on and creates XRP, which is, you know, Ripple Labs. And it's just wild. And he now lives in Puerto Rico because it's a tax haven and is just incredibly wealthy and has this odd contract with Ripple Labs where he can just dump XRP all day long. His XRP is kind of locked up, but he keeps dumping it. And uh, so he's just this incredible personality. And he's not really worth talking to because he'll he's just very combative and will, you know, like lie in interviews and stuff. Because I mean, this guy's like clearly done some very shady stuff. And he just needs to keep his mouth shut. And hopefully no DA, you know, has has the enough time to follow up on on sort of his history, maybe is, is his strategy. But Mt. Gox becomes this relatively large or maybe the main Bitcoin exchange in 2014 and then spectacularly explodes. And it turns out that their backend infrastructure is just a joke. It was relatively trivial to withdraw twice from Mt. Gox because the way that they track transactions was reliant on a malleable ID. So you could receive a withdrawal transaction from Mt. Gox, and then you you could kind of do something and send them some data back and say, hey, I didn't receive that transaction. They would just send it again. They couldn't figure out. They couldn't track transactions. So it's just really a clown show. But I think it's also indicative of how experimental and fringe Bitcoin was at that time in history, because you know it wasn't a very professional operation. I think I saw a video of the Mt. Gox office, and it was basically like a one-room office in Tokyo. It seemed very small scale. Yeah, I mean, people were using Bitcoin to buy pizza and weed. And then after the uh, hack, Mt. Gox was put into bankruptcy proceedings in Japan. And it's been in bankruptcy proceedings for about eight years now, or or maybe uh, seven years. And I thought it was kind of interesting because I've never read an article about the bankruptcy account trustee, but I have read about how the bankruptcy process is very weird in that creditors of Mt. Gox, they might receive the US dollar value of their Mt. Gox deposits at the time that the company went bankrupt, but not the actual Bitcoin. And because Mark Carpellis owns a company called Tenebe or something that owns 80% of the shares of Mt. Gox, he actually might receive over $3 billion in Bitcoin from the bankruptcy estate, even though he lost everybody's Bitcoin and they're receiving pennies on the dollar of the current Bitcoin price. Well, that just doesn't make any sense, Dad. I think it really reveals the inadequacy of the Japanese bankruptcy system. And I just draw attention to this because it's quite interesting. I was looking up at the trustee and he seems to be a very prestigious Japanese lawyer, a former law professor. But the communication with the creditors is all done through the Mt. Gox website, which you can go to. It's just just website full of Japanese text and English translations. And it's it's basically a, a posting board for PDF announcements. And so it feels very kind of backwards and uh, you know not high tech. It, 
doesn't have an HTTP to HTTPS redirect. So if you go to HTTP colon slash slash www.mountgox.com, it's not going to redirect to the AT HTTPS site. So it's just, I mean, that kind of tells you all you need to know, sort of. I was just wondering, like, how do we know that the Mount Gox trustee isn't really benefiting from drawing this process out as long as possible? And so, you know, this might be a 20 or 30 year process or something. I mean, it just... Oh, man. I, I have no basis for this speculation, but it just reading through... They're punting because the price is down, you think? I, I just have no idea what kind of fees are being drawn. I, I was reading through the documentation uh, ever since 2015 uh, as this process is ongoing, and it's really quite a messy lawsuit. There are a bunch of interested parties, not just individuals who had accounts with Mt. Gox. But they're getting awarded cash equivalencies. They're not going to actually get awarded Bitcoin. Is that what you're telling me? It's really not clear. And various different creditors have different incentives because there's a U.S. Seattle-based uh, defunct company that was actually invested in by Roger Ver called CoinLab that has a case against Mt. Gox, and Mt. Gox is actually suing them back. They both allege that they uh, they owe each other money. There's a bankrupt New Zealand cryptocurrency exchange called uh, Bitcoinica that used Mt. Gox as their custodian. Hard to imagine a more clown show thing to do, but you know it was very early. So there are a lot of different entities fighting over the estate. And behind it all, ja Japanese bankruptcy law kind of seems to favor Mark Carpellis for eventually receiving a massive windfall of Bitcoins. Because in a way, by going bankrupt, Mt. Gox seems to kind of only be liable for the US dollar value of their liabilities at the time, or maybe the yen value. And the Bitcoin value would seem to accrue to Mark as the largest shareholder of Mt. Gox. Man, what a mess. Of course, this all had to go down in Tokyo, of course. I mean, not that the US system is much better, but I feel like this is just ridiculous. And isn't it amazing? This is a major economy, but when you get into the details of this process, you have to think, gosh, maybe a lot of legal protections we think we have are not very good. Clearly, I lost money and I've never gotten involved in any of the legal proceedings. I just moved on because it wasn't the first time I'd lost Bitcoin. So to me, it wasn't a huge deal to just move on. I can imagine, imagine somebody who's been waiting and waiting on this uh, for a financial windfall. Reading the history of Roger Ver's involvement with CoinLab, I feel much more sympathy for him because he lost allegedly 545 coins on Mt. Gox. Wow. So being an early Bitcoiner means that you've lost more Bitcoin than most people will ever encounter in their life. Yeah. I don't remember who, but I heard a story about Max Kaiser trying to convince somebody well-known to become a Bitcoiner. And in that process, he gave that person a thousand Bitcoin. This is many years ago, but he just gave him a thousand Bitcoin. And that person lost it. Definitely. 100%. <laughs> Actually, I think they are a Bitcoin proponent today. I think it was, it, it was I don't know if it was money well spent, but uh, they are a Bitcoiner today. I'm just sorry I'm blanking on the name because, as you know, horrible with the name. But one name you're very familiar is Jerome Powell. Your big, your big pal, Jay Powell. I was going to say he's your favorite Federal Reserve chairperson in history, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, that is true. I've never watched any other chairperson's press conferences, and I watch all of Jay Powell's. So. I feel like I know Jay Powell. I watch him when he's uh, at uh, Jackson Hole, you know, and he's he's wearing his uh, his brown suit and he's feeling good and he's getting the fresh air and he's chatting with his buddies. And I watch that's him. That's very when he's academic, these... right? To wear a brown suit. Oh yeah, he's he's a he's a slick he's a slick looking older gentleman. Um, I think he's got a stylist. And of course, uh, I always watch his mood and his presentation in all of the FOMC meetings. Just watched his most if recent. He's wearing one. a red tie. It's very bullish, right? 
Yeah. At this point, I'm just looking for dovish and hawkish. So there was a recent announcement that the Federal Reserve is not moving its federal funds rate target range. It's going to stay between 5.25 and 5.5%. And essentially, the TLDR is the Fed is freezing at higher for longer. They want to maintain higher interest rates through the interest rate mechanisms they control for longer because they believe that the U.S. job market is too strong. Too many Americans have jobs, and this is contributing to inflation expectations. And I think we have expressed a view that this is not a realistic model of the world, that it's very convenient to believe this if you're the Federal Reserve chairperson, because it's kind of an elite view that inflation is caused by poor people trying to negotiate up wages. And the psychology of people with wages drive inflation, because as people negotiate for higher wages, companies raise prices, and therefore it creates this wage price spiral, and therefore inflation is the fault of the largest population in society, which is always the poor, and maybe middle class. But frankly, I think if you call yourself middle class today, you're poor now. Yeah. You're probably poor. Yeah. The other kind of just befuddling thing about this continued stance is that the last year plus has shown this not to be true. When they started tightening, um, actual inflation numbers were, you know, very high. Of course, their CPI and what they look at uh, is lower. But when you looked at food and energy and homes, 17% wouldn't have been, been an unreasonable, especially for fuel and, and food. Uh, and now the same tools that we're measuring that, like the Trueflation dashboard, which I've been watching this entire time, and it's been pretty accurate. It shows that the U.S. inflation rate is actually 2.66%. The government reported is 3.7. Trueflation is now below, for the first time in a while, below the actual reported government rate. So either way, when you independently measure it or when you go by the government's reported inflation rate numbers, it's down significantly from when they started tightening. However, the employment market is not. So we have essentially reduced inflation by maybe in the real world by like 10%. You know, of course, things remain high, but ongoing inflation while the job market hasn't substantially changed. So I don't understand how the theory holds that in order to reduce inflation, you must reduce employment because so far that we have seen a actual successful dramatic reduction in inflation. In fact, if you back it up, trueflation a year ago today, we were measured at 7% and now we're at 2.66%, but we have not seen a dramatic correction in the employment levels. So how can this theory even stand on its face? And the answer is, I don't think it can, but it's very politically convenient to have this model of the economy because it assumes a lot of necessary political truths. And so it assumes that one, the Federal Reserve is central to the US dollar monetary system. And so the Federal Reserve is a symbol of technocratic economic management that is entirely elite captured. And this is a very useful construction for election cycles, because if you think the Fed works, if financial markets like a Pavlovian dog have been conditioned to behave according to media signals and interest rate symbols that the 
Federal Reserve shows them, then you can kind of potentially juice economic sentiment over short periods. And this is very useful for controlling election cycles. So if a candidate, usually an incumbent US president, can convince the Fed chairperson to juice the economy during the election period, that's one of the major determinants of who wins a presidential election. And you saw that at the end of the Trump presidency, because the Powell Fed was concerned about inflation and talking about monetary tightening. And then President Trump was trash talking Jay Powell, because he instinctively understood that that would be bad for his reelection chances. And then we got transitory. (laughs) Everything's transitory. Don't worry about it. What I wanted to just mention is that the reason that I express a view that's very skeptical of this Federal Reserve model of the economy, where there's this strong relationship between inflation and employment, where they can control both human sentiment, which of course shouldn't be necessary if they actually understand the economy. They They should be controlling the actual financial mechanisms that distribute capital or, or influence them somehow. I mean, that's that's at least what their marketing says. But actually, their model of the financial economy is, I mean, it's not even freshman economics at college, and it seems to be widely unquestioned. I was actually kind of interested to hear on a Bloomberg podcast that was discussing the Jackson Hole meeting, some talking head commentator just say, well, of course, the Federal Reserve doesn't have a monetary policy framework. What? It just said that. And then everyone moved on. And so I, I, I think there is a voice in the background that people who have to be somewhat versed in the concept of monetary economics and monetary finance, like they can't say with a straight face, listen to the Fed, they know what they're doing. They have described how the economy works and made a plausible argument for how they are going to shape economic outcomes. I don't think anyone who knows anything really believes that anymore. And I just wanted to share two links, which will show you yield curve charts. And I think this is kind of useful for understanding why a lot of mainstream discussion about the economy is really dumb. Because if you look at this US Treasury yield curve.com chart, what it's showing you is the interest rate paid on different durations of US government debt. And what you can see is that it's heavily inverted. Interest rates are highest at the three, four month point at around 5.6%, and they're lowest at the 10 year point, which is around 4.5%, something like that. So this doesn't make sense because we understand an interest rate on a bond to be a combination of interest expense, like the actual interest rate, plus duration risk. Duration risk cannot be negative. It's impossible for me to be more likely to be paid back in 10 years than to be paid back tomorrow. The person I lent money to might die in 10 years. The government I lent money to might have been consumed by revolution in 10 years. So it's not possible with a normal understanding of how bonds and risk are measured to have interest rates that are lower in the future than they are today, like, you know, paid paid on, on longer duration bonds. So what these yield curve charts show us is that when the yield curve is inverted, when these charts show us that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, it means that short-term interest rates are artificially inflated. The long-term of interest rates seems to be determined by market forces that are very difficult to control. Whereas on the short term, the Fed can purchase large amounts of short-term U.S. government debt to 
influence that interest rate. At the longer term, possibly because there's the holders of those debt instruments are different than short-term holders, you know, the, essentially I think it's mainly uh, pension funds and other uh, financial institutions that kind of need to lock in long-term returns for various like cash and treasury management strategies. Their behavior is less affected by the short-term fluctuations in interest rates, and as a result, they can't be controlled by Fed policy at the short end of the curve. So inverted curves, they're kind of dismissed by central bankers as these weird things don't look at them. But what they say is that if you believe that markets provide any insight about what's going to happen into the future, then interest rates are actually going to come down. And what brings interest rates down? Not good economic news. Interest rates fall not because the economy is growing, but because it's contracting. So bad news, everybody. Right. And and of course, you might know better than I, but what I've read over and over is that you generally don't see the recession that the yield curve was indicating until it actually begins to curve back up. So it's if you look at it, it's generally on the curve up is when the recession is hitting. It's not while the yield curve is quote unquote inverted and down. It's actually when it's recovering that the recession begins. I think it's the kicking the can down the road analogy because while the curve is inverted, you're seeing the Fed trying to fight financial reality. And because they're an institution whose main asset is their quote unquote credibility, they'll only give up that fight when they think it adds to their credibility. Right now, they've taken a stance that they are going to fight reality. They're going to keep interest rates higher for longer and everybody better believe them. And again, that has to do with the fact that most of their policy today is kind of psychological as opposed to actually affecting economic systems. You just implied, and I agree with the implication that the Fed is a political organization and that was influenced by Trump. It seems very likely they could be influenced by the Biden administration as the 2024 election begins. It's pretty hard to win an election if your economy's crashing. Um, so I could see, you know, as we get into summer, maybe policy starts to change a little bit because Biden's going to need that boost if it, if it is a politically influenced organization. And, you know, there is some on-chain data that would suggest that. I've never really understood why. The halvening cycle seemed the most likely because it lines up with the election cycle. But before every halvening, the year before, like clockwork, Bitcoin spends the first half of the year price going up and it spends the second half of the year before the halvening going down, slowly sliding sideways, then down, sideways, then down, which is the phase we're in right now. And I've always wondered why that is, because there's all this hype about the happening leading up to it. Sometimes you think that would lead to actual buy pressure. But I've wondered if there's macro conditions that always happen before an election that cause people to pull back their investment in risk assets. And so now I'm wondering if it if it isn't something to do with the happening cycle, but maybe just Fed policy change that tends to happen because of political pressures during an election cycle. I think that the conflict between Federal Reserve credibility and the needs of a incumbent U.S. presidency are getting more and more interesting as the concept of the Fed as this academic, scientific organization is challenged. I think there's a sense in the zeitgeist that worldwide, we're in a stage where the credibility of institutions is being run down. And I think the Fed is a part of that process. So I imagine that there'll be a lot of scrutiny and perhaps political pressure around Fed policy going in to the US election. And that's really what Bitcoin saves us from, because Bitcoin is a system with a programmatic monetary policy 
that no single party, even parties that collude in the Bitcoin system, would find very, very difficult to change. And that, in a sense, this hard money quality, this hard monetary policy quality, is one of Bitcoin's major selling points. Interestingly enough, I think it's also one of the largest questions about whether Bitcoin will be a suitable monetary medium for a future global economy. Because there's an argument that the dollar, the euro dollar, the petrodollar, an international dollarized world had the advantage of having a high amount of flexibility in the number of dollars that existed. Because I can create dollars by lending dollars to someone, because when I lend someone money, they get, especially if I'm a bank, they get money in their bank account, And on the asset side of my balance sheet, I get a piece of paper that says, this is a loan, it pays interest. I can now sell this loan for money. You can create money in in a banking system. Banks are money factories. And so this international dollar system was very good at creating money all through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And then in 2008, participants in this system realized that when they perform these loan activities that create euro dollars, not only do they have counterparty risk because the people they lend money to might go bankrupt and then that blows a hole in their balance sheet. They also had liquidity risk because at this point in 2008, these lending agreements that were creating dollars, they weren't just using US treasuries. They were using mortgage-backed securities. They were using other financial derivative products. And so we reached a point in 2008 where the global financial economy was kind of running out of things to use as money and then discovered that as they used increasingly exotic financial instruments as money, there's very little liquidity in those instruments. Bitcoin is this interesting reaction to this complex, rehypothecated, financialized economy because it's this pure, simple asset, one ledger, everyone can verify how much there is. It has this stability. It's the ultimate hard money in a sense. At the same time, does this mean that Bitcoin cannot support a growing world because there will be demand for money and Bitcoin will just create constant deflation? This modern view, this neo-Keynesian view of economics suggests that deflation, which is a lesson that was learned during the Great Depression and the 1920s and 30s, is the worst financial state, that, that deflation makes debt service very difficult. And as a result, it's a contracting economic state. And so all the centralized policy from central banks and governments since the 1930s have been anti-deflationary. They've, been, they've essentially been pro-inflation at a low level, theoretically, because deflation is so terrible. But if you look at the properties of Bitcoin, this thing is made for deflation. So does Bitcoin actually work as a global money with lots of participants with these deflationary qualities? Who knows? I mean, I think it's a really interesting experiment and we're we're going to find out soon, I hope. <laughs> I always play with this idea in my head. I could see it playing out so many different ways, right? Where, of course, I could see it where nations maintain their own local currency and they back it by a basket of assets and Bitcoins in there, that type of scenario. Um, I could see sovereign individuals that, you know, they and, and companies that transact directly in Bitcoin, but also maybe in some local fiat. Uh, because it, fe- it seems to me that fiat is an essential tool of the state, especially in our, in our modern society. Uh, when you look at countries at the scale of Western countries, it just seems like fiat's kind of an essential tool for them to uh, fuel their growth plans and all of their investments. Um, Bitcoin would force proper uh, accounting and behavior. Um, I, you know, I, the thing that I've never really well, understood well, hold, about hold the- Hold on, hold on. I just want to push back because I think there's a value judgment there. 
that the current state of like the current nation state is too big and that this current status quo of kind of national currencies on top of the dollar with some flexibility for smaller countries to change their money supply, but then they're kind of accountable to the dollar and only the US dollar has no accountability. I think your assumption there is that this is a very bad state of affairs. Am I right? I was trying to think of it as sort of like, you know, objectively, like it's necessary for the existing organism to function without putting a moral judgment on it. I definitely agree with you that I think that government at its current size probably needs to have quite a bit of flexibility over the money supply because there are moments when money has to be created or printed in kind of a circular fashion where you create government debt and then sell it to the central bank and the central bank prints dollars to pay you. And you say, hey, listen, it's fine. We didn't print money. Nobody panic. We just borrowed it. But it, you know, it was actually printed. Regardless of how it plays out at the state level, I remain the most enthusiastic as how it plays out at the individual level. Creating individual wealth, I think, is going to be a life-changing shift in the social dynamics of many, many countries because it's all over the world people are stacking Bitcoin. And it's going to lift a lot of people out of the poverty line and into the higher end of the middle class potentially or beyond. And that's going to be amazing to watch. It's going to create new businesses and new influencers who have come from different backgrounds that haven't been rich for three generations. It's going to create an exciting tidal wave of new influencers. And I mean that in the traditional sense, not the online sense. So I'm very excited about it at the individual level, regardless of how state adoption plays out, because I think it's always still going to be a tool. And you'll just see different nations use it differently, like a small nation like El Salvador. I think that's going to make a lot of sense, uh, especially one that doesn't want to necessarily be tied to the U.S. dollar strongly. I think it's going to always make sense there. But at a, a country the size of the U.S. or anything kind of in our range or, you know, in the top 30, I just don't think it's ever really going to make sense for them at their current construction. And the only way you're going to get that changed is through considerable crashes and pain. But even large economies like China, for instance, are currently somewhat held to account via their currency's exchange rate with the US dollar. And there's been some interesting news about capital outflows from China increasing, which has been putting downwards pressure on the Chinese currency. And because China is a highly controlled media and financial environment, there are very few non-subjective measures of how things are going in China. Even Zhang Jiming, a former Chinese president, or perhaps premier, he said that he didn't believe China's own GDP statistics, and instead tried to look at raw power consumption data to get a sense of the directional movement of Chinese growth. If power consumption was increasing, probably the economy is growing. The Chinese currency is another one of these indicators and has been trending lower with interventions in foreign exchange markets by state-owned banks attempting to defend the currency. This is a very bad situation. Now, I'm no longer in China. I don't have a ear to the ground so much, but I question any narrative of a soft landing economy or a stable economy where China seems to be having financial problems. And I'm not saying that China is going to collapse or, I mean, I think I said, well, hey, the failure of Chinese real estate companies is this Chinese Lehman moment. Kind of regret that now because I think that it's very different and it's likely to be not as spectacular as we imagine it might be in terms of the potential downside because there are a lot of 
levers for a large state to pull, especially in an internal economy that has capital controls around it. And so participants in that economy are limited in their ability to leave if economic conditions deteriorate. So the fact that foreign exchange is leaving China, capital is leaving China, the currency is down, does seem to indicate directionally they're having economic issues. And so I think it all, it's another flag that forecasts you know, the coming recession or current recession perhaps accelerating and getting worse. And it sounds like people rushing into the dollar isn't necessarily helping them much either. And then uh, Bloomberg says that direct investments have a deficit of $16.8 billion in August, which is the worst since early 2016. And Bloomberg puts that on essentially the economy just not recovering since the COVID restrictions and private sector crackdown. Like they broke things. And just to put Jay Powell to sleep, Jay Powell's explanation of a soft landing U.S. economy completely neglects China. He doesn't talk about the state of the global economy or major U.S. trading partners. And that's just very short-sighted. If that's not part of the economic forecast, then it's not going to be a very good economic forecast because- yeah, It's not part of the mandate, so it's just not part of our proofy. Right. The economy stops at our borders, right? Nothing ever mm-hmm. goes over those borders. Well, we are the great United States after all. I heard someone say online that we should stop shaming Americans for not traveling internationally because it's so far, you know, getting across an international border in the US, you have to, it would be the equivalent of crossing two or three <laughs> European countries for some people. You know, if I could road trip to Germany, I, I would I'd already been to, in Berlin with Brent. I'll tell you what, there is some truth to that. I actually met some German road trippers in the U.S. They'd somehow shipped one of those cool Mercedes four-wheel eco-diesel camper vans oh, over. The, that can't be cheap, but that is the dream. I know. It, 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 was, it looked like they had a very expensive setup. But they were having a great time. Oh, oh, man, I couldn't imagine putting my big RV, but maybe one day I'll have like a portable van size one. That'd be so fun. Like a Bitcoin v- tour. VW bus? The $1 million Bitcoin tour. In a VW bus? Yeah, of course, right? With a little pop-up thing. So that way when I'm out in the desert, I can sleep in, under the stars, but yeah, still park great. in a regular parking spot. You really want to bring an RV in the desert, not a tent, because the wind can blow very strong. And there's critters. Although that's a problem in the RV too, but- They get I inside? Yeah. Oh boy, they sure try. Like snakes and stuff. Um. Well, I don't know about snakes, but definitely mice and you know scorpions can be a problem too. Um. But the critters, they you know they smell something and it gets cold at night and they're just looking for a warm spot. So that engine, that engine bay is so so attractive. And and then you know to help them out, all the car manufacturers now, for environmental reasons, make all of your wiring out of corn. So um, it's delicious that, to them. They love like to a eat the wiring. Bad idea. Having yep. edible wiring. I only discovered this after I had some of mine, you know, devoured and realized that auto manufacturers after a certain year have been doing that. And so you can get a brand new car and you park somewhere that's got mice or rats. And they just got a nice tasty little snack. So when you said that your son was tough, you were just being factual because he has <laughs> grown up like punching scorpions. I'll fighting off the rats and the, the, uh, the, uh, the time we almost got, um, kidnapped, although he wasn't there for that one, but there's been moments on the road. It's not always easy, but I'd, I'd road trip to Berlin. I'll take the $1 million Bitcoin tour. My daughter once saw a raccoon and she was very impressed. Yeah. Until you see their creepy little fingers. You know, they have little people hands. You ever seen them operate things? Yeah, I, I have. It's amazing. And it's they unsettling. also have claws. So if you mess with them, they'll just cut you up. Like they kill dogs all the time. 
I know, you know, I could see a scenario where raccoons rule the world. Sorry, this is unrelated, but I have a potential show title because last night I brushed my daughter's teeth and then she immediately ran to the kitchen. My wife had made a cheese platter. Sure. She just like climbed up onto the counter and just started stuffing the entire cheese platter. Get ready to eat in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, that's against the rules. You just brush your teeth. You can't eat now. It's bedtime. We just brushed your teeth. She looked at me and just said, no rules and continued eating. She's two. Yeah. This type trajectory is going to be rough. She's already discerning which rules are arbitrary and which ones are not and push them back. So I know where that's going. <laughs> she might make a great Bitcoiner though. Well, this episode is brought to you by the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. That's my pot home over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We always got shows over there for you to listen to. Just released the latest episode of Self-Hosted. Oh boy, things at Plex just went from bad to worse, real bad. And uh, we get into the situation you probably heard about the news, but we get into that. Uh, We talk about some brand new VPN shenanigans that both Alex and I are getting into uh, and dig into a bunch of feedback and other topics. So that's Self-Hosted 106. And of course, uh, the big job losses and work from home fight going over at Grindr. It's really dramatic. They just lost like half their staff. We covered that in Code Radio 536. You can find that and our Matrix server adventures in Linux Unplugged 528 at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, that sounds like a fascinating week of podcasts. I think that the work from home fight will actually end up as a Federal Reserve talking point because if companies don't start working from the office again and demanding more commercial real estate, I think that there's likely to be a huge write down in commercial real estate values, which could force a huge number of smaller U.S. banks into insolvency because they're the majority of holders of these mortgages. I like this. This is a man. We need like a little low key sats betting platform because we could definitely have a bet on when the Mt. Gox coins are going to finally be released. And this would be a little spicy bet that the work from home issue becomes a JPOW talking point. I put some sats on that, although I think you're right. Bitfinex has a prediction market, but I don't think we're allowed to use it if we're U.S. citizens. It's got to be like an Umbral app that we could throw behind Tailscale. <laughs> I think it's called Crystal Bull, but it's this weird binary betting model. Yeah, yeah. And from what I've heard, every binary bet business has been just a massive scam. It's very hard to win a binary bet. If we make a real like solid prediction, we should just throw like a thousand sats on it or something, you know, just for fun. A little skin in the game. I think that's a tradition in Bitcoin podcasts for hosts to make bets with each other. Oh, I thought I was being original. Actually, I've just always wanted to do this. So, (laughs) okay. So let's define the bet. What are we betting? Well, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to take the other side because I think you're right. But I guess I will just for fun. A thousand then ta- sats. Then, then I'll take the other side. No, no, you came up with it, so I'll take it. A thousand sats that JPOW um, before rate hikes uses work from home as a talking point. What do you think? So before let, the rates, let's narrow it. So okay. let's just say JPOW has to reference work from home in a press release or like in a in an interview or, st- or like his the statement, his, of- com- his conference. Right. Before the end of 2023. So before January 1st, 2024. Okay. Yeah. That I'll take. I'll take that bet. Okay. Yeah. So I'll take a, I'll take a thousand sats saying he's not going to do that. Okay. Right. Even though I think it's really likely, but maybe I'll get a thousand sats. Now we'll forget, of course, but maybe somebody will boost in and remind us. This might be the moment we get sanctioned by regulators because now we're encouraging gambling. No, it's just, it's a friendly little, we're betting stakes, not sats, stakes. Stakes. Yeah, stakes. I have to give you a thousand stakes if this doesn't happen? Oh my God. <laughs> no, a thousand stake units, which works out, I think, to one New York strip. Well, at least let me get you a T-bone. I mean, that. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do like the T-bones. So I found a really interesting article on NoBS Bitcoin. It's called UTX Oracle. It's a Python script that you can run on your Bitcoin node. And I read the article and then I clicked on a link and it was like, do you want to download oracle.py? And I just was really triggered and was like, no way, scammer, you nearly got me. But actually, I went to the GitHub and read through the script. And it's really interesting. And I, I enjoyed it because I, I think like me, Bitcoin helped me get into IT, Linux, and technology. And when I read that script, it doesn't look like anything I've seen in a business. It looks like a, a hobbyist, like someone who really is uh, just tinkering and having a good time the way that, that they would write it. And it's this interesting piece of software that basically it can figure out like what day a block is from. So it kind of, it kind of goes through, it, it queries your Bitcoin node and you give it a day and it goes and it looks at all the, the blocks on that day and then it puts them into a distribution. It, it, it basically takes a log scale of all the Bitcoin amounts and puts them into, I think, 206 buckets to create a normal distribution of Bitcoin transaction sizes, essentially, and then, or, or really UTXOs. And then it kind of compares a distribution of US dollar values, and it tries to fit them on top of the UTXO shape and then it estimates at what Bitcoin price these sort of patterns would overlap. And so it's a way of estimating the US dollar price of Bitcoin only using blockchain data and a relatively simple model of basically US dollar transaction amounts, if that makes sense. That's so great. Wow. And I got to give credit, the script is really well commented. So you could basically just read through it, even if you don't understand Python. I know I, I was reading it and my wife was like, are you reading code? What's going on? That's right. You're a hacker now. Yeah, exactly. You can feel like a hacker by reading this script. <laughs> I'll have a link in the show notes. And don't forget, there's a contact form over there. You can email BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. And we got that Matrix channel popping 24-7, which is linked in the show notes. And we're always lurking in there if you want to get a hold of us. And we do have some baus. And we'll start with our baller boost this week from Baffo, who sends in 90,000 sats. And he writes, Baffo, happy 100. Thank you, Baffo. Good boost. We happy too, Baffo. Thank you so much. Ahanage, Ahanage also boosts in 40,000 sats with the message, essential listening. Congratulations on episode 100. Thank you so much, Ahanage. Yes, thank you. I, I always mess around with it, trying to get it right. You know, Ahanagin, Ahanaga, the big A, but I always appreciate the boost. Scott came in with 10,000 sats using Podverse. What do you feel is the max amount of funds to have on a hot wallet before you put it on a hardware wallet? I've always gotten the feeling that hardware wallets are for a large savings amount, but more than a million sats sitting on a software wallet does make me a tad nervous. Of course, Lightning nodes often hold keys to millions of sats, so maybe I'm just too cautious. Anyways, thanks for the show. Thanks for the boost, Scott. I think that's a great question, and unfortunately, like most financial decisions, they're intensely personal. I would say that if you are feeling uncomfortable with the amount of Satoshis on a hot wallet, if you find yourself thinking about it or worried about it, then you need to put them in a place where you don't feel nervous. And that might be a hardware wallet. That might be a very cold storage Bitcoin software wallet. For instance, you have a Tails installation and a Bitcoin seed that was generated in Tails with no 
network access. You wrote it down on paper. You never took a picture of it. And now that wallet is sort of air-gapped, kind of. It can access the internet via Tor, but it was created and only exposed to an ephemeral operating system without internet access, potentially. You might feel more comfortable with that. Honestly, some people like a semi-custodial or a supported multi-signature solution. I believe River has one, Casa has one. This involves paying a company to be involved in your multi-sig, but they can give you some support if you have technical questions or you lose a key or you're just feeling stressed out about the whole process. So it might be worth the KYC or potential cost to do that. It really depends on you. I think at the end of the day, we don't want things in our lives that make us feel nervous. We want things in our lives that make us feel confident and safe. So you just have to figure out how you get there with Bitcoin. Mere Mortals podcast boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. While we're on decent Aussie exchanges, I like to use PayBTC. You give them your address, send them fiat, and then it appears. They only custody it for the five seconds it takes to verify payment. Super simple, no logins, minimal KYC. That sounds awesome. I think that minimal KYC solutions that are very convenient are just, you know, they're great. They're so fun to use. I tried to use RoboSats earlier this week, and there's only like three sellers on there. And really, all the payment methods kind of trace back to KYC, too, for these ones. So I was like, ah, we need more solutions. Well, Bisk is waiting for you, Chris. If you can't find a seller on RoboSats, go on Bisk, and there will be someone willing to accept cash in an envelope sent via FedEx or something, and they will send you Bitcoin. <laughs> they will very likely send you Bitcoin if you likely. do that. I was just trying to think of like a quick way to pick up some spending sats for our trip to El Salvador, you know, get some, get like, you know, a couple million sats maybe so we can, we can uh, pay with Bitcoin while we're down there. Well, I mean, you have them from your boost. So I think that's uh, probably yeah, enough to, mm -hmm. to go on. The thing about El Salvador is that you, that you really want cash. It's a cash economy. So you'll actually find a very large number of US dollar coins in circulation. Those $1 coins. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's fun. where that's where they all went. If you think, hey, I remember when we used to have those in circulation, but then they all disappeared. They all went to El Salvador. <laughs> well, the Golden Dragon sends some sats to that trip fund. 9,500 sats. Happy 100 episodes. Glad to have been taking my journey with the pod to help me out. We have a seed signer. How do I go about using a samurai, using samurai to mix to cold storage? Currently, I'm just going direct from my node to chain to cold storage, but I'm starting to rethink that. So a seed signer is a very interesting DIY hardware wallet slash seed signing device. And what's really cool about it is because you build the hardware yourself, you install the software yourself, you can verify that any Bitcoin seed put into the seed signer is very unlikely to be exfiltrated because you assembled the device the yourself, you had to review the software to get it working. So you can be very confident that there's no shenanigans inside the signing device itself. It's a definitely a power user device because with a seed signer, you have to now interact with partially signed Bitcoin transactions, which I believe are currently thought to be the best security available for interacting with hardware wallets and uh, or, or signing devices and software wallets on Bitcoin. But there is complexity there. Mixing from Samurai to cold storage, I do not know if Samurai has a UI that allows you to sort of give it cold storage addresses to eventually mix into. I do not believe so. So I think that you may have to 
essentially mix and then send to cold storage and manage those UTXOs in a manual fashion. I'm not 100% sure though, because I know that Sparrow Wallet has a Samurai Whirlpool mixing integration, but I've never used it. So I'm not sure if there are some nice to haves there that might help you in this process. Oh, it does make it easier to go, yeah, you know, from your hot wallet to the pool, then sweep from pool to your hardware wallet. There's a nice workflow for that inside Sparrow. JQ boosts in 4,000 sats. Congratulations on 100. Wanted to throw some value back. Thank you. Oh, thank you, JQ. Always appreciate what people think of us. Faraday Fedora came in with 10,000 sats and just says, happy 100. Thank you, Faraday. That Fedora always cheers me up. Yeah, dapper hat too, you know? You don't find hats like that anymore. Don't make them like they used to. How was right came in with 4,200 sats using Podverse, saying Brian is showing up on the uh, keg party after everyone is either passed out or throwing up. It's about time Coinbase, yeah, talking about coming on the Lightning Network. Yeah, I just watched him in an interview, too, and he briefly mentions the importance of Layer 2 networks, but then goes on to plug his own thing, of course. Hal gives a plus one to bolts.exchange. He says it's great and I use it all the time. Thank you, Hal. I really appreciate that because I'm not kidding. I've had it up in a tab since the last episode and I'm like, should I try it? Is it safe? I really appreciate that feedback. I too will definitely check out bolts.exchange and thank you so much for the 420 themed boost. We also got 10,000 sats from at Halleck with the message boost. Thank you for the boost at Halleck. Thank you. John A. came in with 10,000 sats. No message, though, but using Castomatic, which is a fantastic podcast app. Thank you, John A. We really appreciate that. And thank you, everybody who boosted. And we actually had 15 total boosters, some below the 2,000 cutoff, but we read all of them and we keep all of them in the dock. And we stacked 194, 344 sats this week. Thank you, everybody who wished us happy 100 birthday boost. And if you'd like to boost in, we'd love it. It's a great way to show some value back to the show. If you found the conversation insightful or valuable or useful, maybe give you some context. A boost is a great way to say thank you and invest in the ongoing production of the show. Now you can try out a new podcast app at podcastapps.com, like Castomatic if you got iOS. Podverse and Fountain are also very popular in our community. They all have their own advantages. And uh, they're really great. I'm I'm probably these days split the most between Podverse and Fountain, but I do a lot of my testing in Castomatic because it's such a slick, slick app on iOS. So try them out at podcastapps.com. But if you want to keep your app, just get Albi, getalbi.com. You install that as a browser extension. Yes, I know, but it's actually pretty slick. Then you top it off. It's a lightning app. So you can either get sats directly in the app or uh, anything on the lightning network. And then you go over the podcast index and you'll find the Bitcoin dad pod over there. We have it all linked in the show notes and you can boost from the index website and you can keep your dang podcast app and still support the show. Links to all that in the show notes. I've also heard that if you are on Apple, leaving a review really helps show rankings. Is that true? Yeah, that's how they do their little like recommendations and discovery or when you search, you know, the top results are going to be the ones that have reviews and stars. And it's still a very influential podcast directory. If we do have some Apple powered listeners, it would be nice if they left a review. I think it's the first time we've asked for that. I just don't know what the balance between annoying people with begging for reviews. Although you got to figure the people that listen to the Bitcoin dad pod are savvy of savvy enough to know that like the reviews and the stars probably influence the search rankings and it does help the show. So they get why we ask. We just don't need to be obnoxious about it, but they get it. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, September 22nd, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... With me, it's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.